In today's episode, we have the world traveler Thor. Welcome, everyone, to The Unconventionals, a podcast where I have conversations with people who have made their way in life through unconventional ways. Each episode, we learn about the lifestyles, challenges, and mindset that led these people to where they are today. My name is Javier Aguilar, talking to you from Hong Kong, and the podcast starts now. There you go. Uh, so today, we have a very interesting uh, person here sitting with me today. Uh, his name is Thor. Uh, welcome, Thor. Thank you, and uh, I'm happy to be here. You have one of the most interesting uh, stories that I have had the opportunity to to interview so far, because if I have my numbers right, you have been traveling around the world without using a plane mm. for how many years now? For more than eight years now. For more than eight years, and you are so close to finishing. I think you are like you've been to 194 countries. Yes, and the target from the beginning was 203 countries. Okay. So that was uh, looking at the United Nations countries and then building on top of that to make sure that I did it right from the beginning. <laughs> and you don't go home and someone say, why didn't you go here or why didn't you go there? <laughs> so you have nine to go. Nine to go, yes. And it's been like that for a couple of years now. I could imagine. I, I will ask you about <laughs> how this situation has been affecting you. But before we, we get there, I, I would really like to know, like, okay, so we're back to eight years ago. Yes. How on earth do you decide to, okay, you know what? I'm going to travel the world and I'm going to do it without, without flying. Yeah. Basically. So what, bring me back a little bit uh, to before you had this idea, like how did, what were you doing back then? Well, I come from a background within shipping and logistics and I've been doing shipping and logistics for 12 years of my life. At the time, uh, just before I found out that no one's gone to all the countries without flying, I was working uh, north of the Arctic Circle on mm -hmm. uh, also a logistical project. And I came back home to Denmark, I think it must have been around January 2013, and my father sent me an email. Okay. And there was a link, and I click on the link, and it went to an article, and I was reading about people traveling to all the countries in the world. And at that time, I didn't even know how many countries there were in the world. But I guessed, you know, maybe around 200. And uh, it was quite fascinating to find out that back in 2013, probably less than 200 people had been to every country in the world. Really? And if you go back to the beginning of the millennia, it would have been like 10 people or 15 people or 20 people or something like that had been to every country in the world. Wow. So it's, it's really expanded uh, over over the the last years and uh, by reading this article i realized that no one has gone to all the countries in the world completely without flying and that seemed significant to me somehow hmm. and it's it's hard to describe because people have been to every country in the world and why do it without flying but for one reason it's a lot harder and it seems maybe a little bit closer to original travel before it was so easy and you could just fly. You need to find ships and you don't travel with camels and horses, but uh, you find your buses and your trains yeah. and you meet a lot of people. And so, so I didn't read the article and then think I'm going to do this. I just thought it was really fascinating. And then after some time, I was sort of obsessed with the idea and I thought that I had the qualifications to do it. And eventually it developed into project planning. And then I left home on the 10th of October, 2013. At 10, 10. Yes, that's right. At <laughs> 10, 10. So the idea was the 10th of October is the 10th of the 10th. 
Yes. And then a 1010 makes it 10, 10, 10, 10. Okay. So just out of curiosity, from the day approximately when you read that, read that article for the first time to the day that you said, okay, I'm leaving. So the 10th of October, how long was it between having the original idea to actually starting the journey? Well, I usually say that it was a 10-month uh, period that went into the planning. But in reality, the first few months, I guess, was just sort of toying with the idea, talking to different friends. I had a fascination about this, which most of my friends didn't share at all because they had children and a car and a job and they're paying money back to the bank and things like this. And um, so amongst my friends, I think I have always been an interesting character because I traveled and uh, for, for work. And I worked as an expat in a multitude of different countries around the world. And I came. So you were already in quite a few countries before starting the journey. Yeah. In fact, I had been to 54 countries before this project began. Uh, so I lived in a number of those countries. I worked in 20 countries and then uh, the wow. remaining countries would have been holidays and just out of interest. Hmm. So I already felt like I had a good idea about what the world looked like and what to expect and different countries and religions and cultures and climates and so on. But of course, going to all the countries is something completely different. And then gradually it developed into, this is something I think I want to do. And if I want to do it, then how can I do it? And mm -hmm. And uh, what would the logistics be and the route and what would I wear and what would be the values of the project and so on? Which kind of partners would we involve in the project? And I invited some friends to help me develop it. And I called them the project group. So three friends came on board mm. and it got more and more structured. And eventually it was a plan. And then towards the end, I guess the last two months probably were really intense in terms mm. of uh, getting things in place. Interesting. So when it comes to planning something like this, what are the main things that you need to focus on. So we're talking about logistics. Are we also talking about how to support yourself while traveling? Definitely. Finance was uh, a big question within this. And uh, the timeline, time management within this. So if you estimate there are about 200 countries in the world and you spend, let's say, one day in all of these countries, you know you have a 200-day project. Hmm. And, and that's still a lot of time, 200 days, but... That's not realistic with one day per country. So you, let's say one week per country. Then one week times 200, that's very close to four years of your life. And yeah. now you're starting to spend a lot of your life uh, completing this, uh, this project, this expedition. And, uh, you know, maybe you, you go to some countries and you say, well, one week is not enough. You know, Russia is a big country. The United States is a big country. You know, the, Brazil is a big country. There are a lot of big countries. So let's say you need a month in every country in the world. <laughs> then you go from spending four years of your life to spending 16 years of your life completing wow. this journey. And um, I went with an estimate of four days. Oh, sorry, seven days per, per country, okay. uh, which would then be four years and was hoping that was realistic. And I thought that would be realistic. Also, I had been to 54 countries, so I felt like those countries I could go a little bit fast. I'd already been there and so on. But it just proved to be incredibly complicated in in various regions and for various reasons uh, bureaucracy especially is uh, is quite hardcore and uh, then we were struck by a pandemic as well which uh, <laughs> that didn't help much it didn't help no so it's been eight years now and i'm a married man uh, my wife is back home she's been out to visit 23 times across uh, this uh, this project so we've had a lot of experiences together in many many countries and uh, yeah, but yeah, so time management was a big concern. Finance. 
I, based on four years, I knew it was going to cost, even with a small budget, it would still be a lot of money. Hmm. And I didn't want to travel into the world and then come back and have debt um, because of it. And uh, one of my friends said, we can definitely find sponsorship for something like this. So we started to look into that and we were very, very fortunate to uh, bring uh, Ross, DK and Giop into this project. Hmm. And these are companies that work within geothermal energy and well management. And uh, they're supporting the budget, which is 20 US dollars per day. Okay. Yeah, that definitely helps. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In many countries, especially. Yeah, for sure. Yes, there are countries where 20 US dollars is a lot. And uh, you can find a place to sleep and something to eat and transportation. And maybe you don't even need a visa. I travel with a Danish passport, so that's quite a strong passport. Yeah, right. Do you have an estimation how many countries do you actually need a visa for? Yeah, it's a good question. I should look at that at some point because, yeah, for sure, there are a lot of countries where I can just uh, flash my passport and then they let me across the border. But the reality of travel is that if you fly, then there are a number of countries that are willing to give you a visa on arrival. But if you want to cross the land border, then you need to apply for the visa before arriving at the border. Oh. So, in fact, the Danish passport, while it's still a very strong passport, it's not as strong when you're not flying. Yeah. So you have not been back home yet? No. No. So, so there are three ground rules within the project. Okay. We had to define what does it mean to go to every country in the world without flying. And the most obvious one was rule number one, no flying. <laughs> so no flying for any reason whatsoever. Don't get in a hot air balloon. Don't go on a helicopter trip, even if you come back to the same place. Okay. No flying, zero flying. Then there's no debate. Mm-hmm. Um, a second rule would be how long do I need to stay in a country before I can say I have been there? Mm. And on a technicality, you can say you just step across the border, spend a few seconds, and then no one can say you were not there. Mm. But a lot of travel clubs and uh, travel organizations, they say that in order to count a visit, you need to spend 24 hours. Okay. And that also makes sense. So you get, a, you get to sleep in the country, you have to eat several meals, and you mm-hmm. meet some people and so on. So we put this as a rule, 24 hours minimum. And then the final one was, what would it be to go to every country in the world? Do you expect that someone would do it and go to, say, 20 or 30 countries and then go home and wait for three or four years True. and then continue? Or would it be to go out and visit all of them and then come back afterwards? So we made a rule that said, I cannot return home until I reach the final country or if I quit, of course. Mm. And in the meantime, your, your wife is waiting back home. So you were married before, of course, before traveling? No. So she was my girlfriend when I left home. Okay. And then in 2015, uh, I think it would have been 2015, 16 maybe, she came to visit me in Kenya. And it was her visit number 10. And I wanted to make it special. And I just had long before decided that this is the woman I want in my life. So I lured her up on top of Mount Kenya and got on one knee and presented her with a ring. And fortunately, she said yes. (laughs) And then we were engaged for quite some time. And then we were hoping that eventually I would get to New Zealand. And then she would fly to New Zealand and we would get married in New Zealand. Uh, but I was stuck here in Hong Kong mm-hmm. for a very long time. We had not seen each other for maybe a year and a half. And Hong Kong's border was closed to uh, tourism for mm-hmm. a very, very long time. So we needed to find a way that she could come to Hong Kong without being a tourist and um, someone told me that you can get married online so um, we investigated this and uh, i got in touch with a guy who had done this someone here in hong kong 
So in Utah, there's an agency where they marry people uh, online, sort of like through Zoom. Okay. But they have their own platform. And it's legal in uh, Utah and uh, within their state. And by default, I think it must be legal throughout the United States as well. So this guy, he said that it's also accepted by the government in Hong Kong. And you get really official paperwork and all this stuff. So they they send this over and I went and uh, proved to the government of Hong Kong that I was married and this was my wife. Mm. And I got a job in Hong Kong so I could have a Hong Kong ID. And with a Hong Kong ID and being married, I could bring her to Hong Kong as my spouse. Wow. And uh, yeah, so she was soon on an airplane and she came and spent uh, just about 100 days uh, in Hong Kong together with me. Mm. And then she went back home again and she was recently here and uh, only for three weeks. So she had five weeks holiday, needed to do two weeks quarantine. True. And then had three weeks in Hong Kong and left on December 18. Okay. Yeah. Well, better than nothing. Better than nothing. And the funny thing about being married uh, online, so we're married in Utah and the United States, and we're married in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. which would then be China as well. So you would imagine that China also accepts that we're married. But Denmark does not accept that we're married. Okay. So in Denmark, they say, if you want to get married, you need to be in the same room. Okay. Yeah. So you need to... Maybe Probably get we'll get married one more time. <laughs> one more time. <laughs> yeah, so that would check. But okay, so just to jump a little bit more into the actual traveling itself. Sure. What, w- what would you say has been the most essential things that you need to have with you to, to be able to do a traveling? Like, what are the key items? Well, I call myself a modern-day adventurer. And one of the reasons is because we live in this high-tech society. Um, you know, I can communicate with my wife uh, within a second. It's not like uh, a few decades ago where you would have to send a fax maybe or send a letter <laughs> and wait for wow. months, right? And uh, so I would say something that's essential for a modern-day traveler is a smartphone. And then you have a number of different apps on this phone. You know, mm-hmm. Google Maps has been super helpful and other uh, maps uh, on, on the phone has been help- helpful for booking uh, a variety of hostels and uh, for currency conversion and for translation and all this stuff just in your phone. Mm. That has been really, really essential. Of course, the passport is essential. You know, you're not crossing borders without your passport. I uh, like to have a pen in my pocket and the pen is super good. If you're speaking to someone or trying to communicate and they want to write down an address that you need to Mm. go to or they want to write down a phone number or an email address, um, but also, if you don't speak the same language, you can try to draw, um, maybe draw a bus or draw something else and then yeah. sort of explain it. And on top of that, it's uh, good if, you, if you're speaking English with someone in, uh, let's say, Arabic-speaking country, mm. then they write within Arabic as well. And I have no chance of reading any of that. I'm not trained within that. So I can have someone write down in Arabic or Cyrillic or Chinese, mm-hmm. what I can show the taxi driver. And then the taxi driver, if the taxi driver can read, and most often they can, then they know exactly where I'm going. Yeah. You know? So it's good to have a pen, and then also you can use it as a defense mechanism. Uh, you can po- you can try to poke someone with your pen if, <laughs> if you're being attacked, but I've never needed to do that. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever been in a, situ- in a kind of like a scary situation? Yeah, I've been in several scary uh, situations, but... As you know, as it is with many things, I, I like to say that if I was to tell you everything bad within the last eight years, mm. then we can finish uh, within a, a few hours or maybe six or seven hours. And I told you everything bad. Yeah, yeah. 
But if I want to tell you everything good from the last eight years, hmm. we will sit here for months exactly. talking about that. So I just want to bring that into, um, before I answer the question, say that the balance is completely uneven. There has been so much more good and normal and... You know, a lot of people have helped and been kind in various ways. And very, very few people have tried to harm me or attack me. For sure. But then, again, having said that, danger sort of comes in uh, a variety of different packages. Sometimes it's uh, not a person. Sometimes it's uh, nature. I was on board a container ship which was caught in a storm. And uh, the ship was being thrown all over the place and thunder and lightning. And uh, we were having trouble with the engine. And, Oof. you know, I thought I thought we were going to sink. Um, but they were very confident on board the ship and they said, this is nothing. We've seen worse than this. Don't worry. Just don't go outside. Don't fall in the water. You'll be fine. And the storm lasted for four days. Um, wow. but, but we were fine eventually. And I really felt until I felt their confidence. I was scared shitless. And I thought, this is the end of my life. We're going to sink here. The water is cold. No one will ever come and rescue us. This is, this is game over, but we were fine. So you can also get into a bus and you don't know if the driver has been going for 24 hours and he's sleepy. You don't know if he has a driver's license. You don't know if the mechanic did a proper check. You don't know if the brakes are working. You don't, sure. you know, so the, you can be in danger without really knowing it. Or you can be in a situation where someone is standing in front of you with a gun. Hmm. And this has happened a few times as well. Um, the most notorious story is from Central Africa. I was in the very south of Cameroon. And I was trying to get to the border so I could cross into Congo. Hmm. And there was a checkpoint in the middle of the night on the 31st of December. So New Year's Eve, people were drunk, people were partying and so on. But this was way, way inside a forest uh, or jungle hmm. uh, on a dirt road. And there were no houses, there were no people, but this checkpoint was there. And there were three armed men in uniforms drunk out of their mind <laughs> and from the they stopped the car and asked me and the driver to get out of the car and from the moment they saw me yeah one of them he almost had flames in his eyes he just became the devil he was so vicious and it was so out of control with them waving their guns around with the finger on the triggers and uh, i had no doubt that that was the end of everything yeah i thought you know it, it would take so little and there would just be an accident hmm. or maybe out of drunkenship and anger and all of this emotion and so hmm. on, then a split second decision might be the wrong and, and I would, they would fire upon me. I was so sure it was over and it went on for what felt like a hundred years. Uh, but in reality, it was maybe 45 minutes, okay. but every second felt like the last second of my life. And I felt I was far into the darkness. I was so far away from civilization. I was so far away from the last time I communicated with anyone and mm. the last time I told anyone where I was. And so they, even if people came looking for me, they would be looking in the wrong place. It yeah. just felt like a really, really bad decision. And then they let me go um, for no apparent reason. So um, the driver and I, we got back in the taxi and then we raced out of there like bats out of hell. <laughs> and my heart was pounding and I was nervous and my entire body hmm. was uh, under a lot of stress for a long time. Yeah. And then it really just got worse after that. <laughs> so there were several checkpoints and a, okay. a, a lot of stories from, from that region. It was, it was a tough time. It's so many different regions, so many different cultures. And yeah, yeah you never know who you're talking. But again, as you said, it's always, I, I've traveled a little bit 
way less than you. But uh, I have also experienced way more good than bad when interacting with people by far. Mm. So, of course, you can always uh, get into situations like this. But you were mentioning that you have also have the majority of the situations is positive interactions with people. Absolutely. Like a key example is here from Hong Kong. So I was never meant to come to Hong Kong. That wasn't a part of my plan because I absolutely love Hong Kong. And Hong Kong has now turned out to be the place where I spent the most amount of time uh, against, yeah. against my will. <laughs> but, but, you know, I really know Hong Kong well and love Hong Kong. But Hong Kong is not a country. Hong Kong is a part of China. So I counted as China. And I had been to China already. So there was no need for me to come to Hong Kong, except mm. I needed to get to Palau. Okay. And I was in Micronesia and a shipping company that I've been working together with they said that uh, they have a ship that goes up to Hong Kong and then I wait for four days in transit and then another ship can take me to Palau. And that made perfect sense to me. Hmm. So I came up to Hong Kong and then that was around uh, Chinese New Year. So the agent called me after a few days and said, it's not going to be four days, it will be 11 days because things are operating very slow at the port. And I said, fine, Hong Kong's an interesting place, 11 days is okay. Hmm. And in the middle of Chinese New Year, before the 11 days, Palau closed its borders to Hong Kong and, and Guam and mainland China, so to greater China. And then I needed to work on a situation and uh, I tried to see if I could get to South Korea, if I could get to Singapore, if I could go to uh, Taiwan and then continue from there. Hmm. But pretty quickly, it was a global pandemic yeah. and, and I was just stuck here. Yeah, yeah. Bad timing, especially Hong Kong has been especially harsh with the, with the borders. Yeah. Oh, I lost track of my story. So uh, my um, yeah, so I was supposed to be here for four days, and I do motivational speaking. And there was an office where that I've done a lot of motivational speaking at. Uh, there's an international company, and they have offices around the world. And uh, one of their employees here in Hong Kong said, "Oh, four days, we have a guest room. You can come and uh, you can stay in yeah. our guest room." I said, oh, that sounds excellent. And that was in Sai Kung, which is a very nice and green part of Hong Kong, um, far away from uh, Hong Kong Island and the main city. And uh, yeah, so I got off the ship and the agent drove me to Sai Kung and I was staying with this family. And then there was this extension and there's no problem. The children, they like you and everything's fine and you can stay for a few extra days. And I ended up staying with this family for five months. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I think that shows a lot about strangers. These are people I never met before. And I like to say a stranger is a friend you've never met before. Mm. And I think I've proven that again and again and again. But imagine the hospitality for a family to invite someone and say, okay, you're in a shitty situation. Stay with us for five months. Wow. Yeah. Very nice. And then I guess you've been, since you're not flying, the majority of your travel has been through boats, if we're talking about different continents, and then road. Yeah. Which one? Which one's your favorite? It changes a lot. So when I've been going with buses for a long time, then I get sick and tired of buses and then I'm dreaming about getting on a train. And then if I've been going with a lot of trains, then I get tired of the trains and I'm dreaming about some other form of transportation. But I would have to say now I haven't traveled much. Um, I haven't traveled internationally for sure for a couple of years. And uh, looking back at all the transportation, I think I prefer the trains. Be more comfortable. Um, actually, I, I sometimes travel with container ships, and uh, that is my priority. But uh, I only use container ships when I need to go between continents or if I need to go to faraway islands and so on. But the container ships, they provide me with a holiday. So it's a very intense project. 
And most of the time, I feel like I, I, I need to find a solution to go to the next country or get a visa and mm. so on and so forth. I need to update social media and, and blah, blah, blah. But when I'm on board the ships, the container ships, often I do not have internet. So, and I'm moving between A and B. So I don't feel like I'm wasting my time. Yeah. I am moving and I'm offline. And that really feels like a holiday to me. Whereas I have been on this mission for eight years and the target has been to reach all the countries without flying. And the moment I do nothing, I will never reach the last nine. So I constantly mm. need to get updated and meet people and look for solutions and reply to emails and, and stay on top of it. I constantly need yes. to be vigilant with this. But on the container ship, I can relax because things are moving. Yeah, you have no other choice. You have no Wi-Fi. So. Exactly, yes. But if you look apart from those container ships, I would say trains Trains are very, very comfortable. You can move around and you see the landscape. And yes. Do you know what has been the longest distance that you have actually traveled in, in one trip? Um, well, I've, I went with a container ship for 27 days. Okay. So I think that was the longest time with the same mode of transportation. I went with a train for five days. Uh, that was from Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia and to Moscow in Russia. And that was five days in the winter time. So it was snow and ice outside the windows and there was nobody else in the train except for me uh, and the people who worked on the train. Uh, so that was a very special experience. And I've been with a bus for 54 or 56 hours with the same Oof. bus. That's a very long time in a bus. That's a long time, yeah. That was, of course, in Brazil, which is a very large country. So. Oh, yeah. But I would say overall, the longest time has been all eight years because I haven't been back home and I've been trying to move ever since. Of course. Do you miss home? Yeah, sure. <laughs> a lot. I think home is really the Good only... old Denmark. Yeah, it's the, it's the only place where you sort of feel like you know everything. You know the weather and you know what the winters are like, the summers, and you know the products. You go to a supermarket and you don't need to work out what oatmeal looks like if it's in a bag or a can or mm. something else. Yeah. Um, you know what to expect if you stop someone on the street. You know how people will react. You know the language. You know, you know the animals and the insects. You know <laughs> what the dangers are. You know what's uh, not harmful. You know everything. Yeah. It's such a comfort zone mm. compared to moving into the world where often you know nothing. Yeah, yeah. You've been out of your comfort zone for a long time. Yeah. Especially traveling. It's a, it's a challenging one, I would say. Yeah. So you rarely meet anyone who travels for a prolonged period of time. You know, so, you know, you have some young people, they go out for like a gap year or maybe they go out for six months or something mm. like this. Yes. And uh, I meet a lot of those six months people or three months people. Uh, not so many that travel for a year without going home. And then sometimes you meet people who go for a bit longer than that. But I don't know if I ever met anyone who's been traveling for two years. Yeah. Because people get sick and tired of it. And it's, it is hard work eventually. So it starts out as adventure and fun, and then some of it becomes routine. And then uh, you, eventually you've seen enough temples and sunsets, you've met enough people, and the fun sort of disappears, and you want to go home and recharge your batteries. Yeah. So people do that, and that's the same thing to do. But I can't do that with this project because of the project rules. So that is that what kept, uh, you know, walking? Yeah, I would definitely have returned home if the rule wasn't there. Exactly. If the so you know, in many ways, what when I look at my own project, I look at it uh, in a way where I say I'm creating world history. 
and I want to have it well defined. I don't mm. want people to debate afterwards. Was it one journey or two? Did he stay long enough? Did he go to all the countries? I want to do it right. Mm. But these three rules that we created uh, make it almost impossible. There are a number of visas that you cannot apply for unless you are a resident. So the, at the embassy, they will tell you to go back home and apply for the visa. And I can't do that for a number of reasons. So maybe I'm thousands of kilometers away, so it's just not practical. But also I cannot go home because of that rule. Uh, and then you need to find your way around it. Um, and the not going back home thing is also mentally, get a mental break from all of it. Yeah. You know? And I just haven't had that for eight years. Yeah, could imagine. Um, just to ask a couple more questions regarding the travels itself. Um, which would you say that has been the area or the country that has surprised you the most and the least? Hmm. Well, that's, a, that's a very good question. I There are a few countries I traveled into and I had some expectation to these countries and it was just completely different. One of them is uh, Andorra. Okay. For, I didn't know much about Andorra before going. And for some reason, I thought it was a super poor country. <laughs> it really it really isn't and uh, so it's a, of course a modern country and there is yeah. a massive amount of skiing in andorra um and uh, yeah it's beautiful and people are nice and friendly and modern and so on so that sort of that took me by surprise because i was an idiot and i didn't know <laughs> yeah and then sometimes i've been surprised by the amount of hospitality or the forwardness of people um, Uganda just felt like the kind of place where a stranger would come up and give you a hug. You know, <laughs> super friendly. People were so nice and kind. And and uh, Sudan was a country where it was hard to pay for anything. Um, Pakistan as well. There are a number of countries where you as a guest, just you're raised up to levels that are absolutely uh, impossible in my home country, Denmark. I think Denmark is a friendly and, and a forward coming country and I think people are kind. But in terms of hospitality, uh, we have a lot to learn uh, compared mm. to other countries. I mean, in, in Sudan, once I started making friends there, I just couldn't get my wallet out of my pocket. It was impossible. And I tried in so many ways to pay for things and wow. say, no, now it's my turn. And they were just laughing at me, <laughs> saying that you're our guest. There's no way you will pay in this country. We will take care of you. And then when we all come to Denmark, you can pay for us. <laughs> <laughs> That's very yeah. nice. How about traveling in countries with conflict? I'm thinking of Afghanistan. I'm thinking of even North Korea. Yeah. Um, countries where that are a little bit more, you know, tense. And when you plan about going, you it's not like any other country. Mm. How has your experience been in some of these more conflicting countries in today's situation? Well, it has been intense uh, often. And then sometimes you uh, you manage to, or I manage to persuade myself that everything is uh, okay or in a better state than what it really is, and um, and I almost uh, fall asleep and, and and forget the dangers. The overall theme for all of these countries that have uh, armed conflict or, um, or great poverty is that if people are not willing to go there because they are afraid and you go anyway, then they really value your visit. 
mm. and they want to show you the beauty of their country and the food and the culture and maybe there's a very old tree somewhere uh, which there was when I went to Afghanistan there was a tree and they said this tree is more than a thousand years old come and see this tree <laughs> and, so, and uh, the, in Afghanistan they went to the grape market and they said do you like grapes and I said yeah sure so which grapes do you want so I I know green grapes, I don't know red grapes. Yeah. <laughs> this is what I say, well, in Afghanistan, we have at least 40 different types of grapes at this market. So <laughs> I will get a mix for you. You can see what you like. Yeah, so I think hospitality has been very rich in countries with armed conflict and uh, countries which are labeled uh, dangerous countries by people from the outside often. And then when you go, you see that life is far more normal than what mm. the camera usually shows you in the evening news that uh, people have smartphones and they take selfies and update Instagram and other social media platforms. And uh, that people, they find a way. Mm. Children play football and people fall in love and they still have weddings and so on. Not for sure. But yeah, so another thing I can say about uh, these conflicted countries or countries where I put myself at risk when I go is that I do a lot more preparation. Yeah. I, I, I I do a lot of research. I try to learn as much as I possibly can. I map out exactly how I will go and where I will go, if I will go with a with a bus and which bus company I will use and what's recommended and which city I go to, where am I going to sleep? And mm. I try to have a contact always if I go to one of these countries and mm. make sure that someone is there either to receive me at the border or to the bus stop where the, mm. where the bus is taking me. Have you actually been able to work in some of these countries? No, I think that the project within itself is so much work <laughs> yeah. that taking a job on the side would just be extreme. <laughs> so I'm, I'm traveling as a goodwill ambassador of the Danish Red Cross, mm. and I've been visiting with the Red Cross globally. And, you know, people, they will see a post once a week, and maybe I write something in my blog. But the reality is that I need to establish a contact mm. with, with the Red Cross or the Red Crescent in the country that I'm going to and explain to them what kind of benefits are there for them and how can they use the project and set up a meeting and then find their address and get there. So so there's a lot of work within that. The social media is super demanding in terms of, uh, I try to make posts that are relevant Mm. and, uh, and correct. So that takes a lot of time. Then, of course, you have all the logistics and the bureaucracies. Oh, I need to apply for the visas. I need to know how many pages I have left in my passport. I need to know where I can get a new passport. I need to know which borders to cross. I need to get my bus tickets or train tickets and all this stuff. And how do you do that in a new country? Is there an app? Do you do it online? Do you need to go to the bus terminal? Where is the bus terminal if you need to do that? Where am I sleeping? I do these uh, speaking engagements. So I'm invited to come to schools and companies and and so on. And then there's the travel time itself. You know, you sit in buses and trains for tens and tens of hours. Um, So it's quite intense and it's less fun. Um, Mm. It's it's not like a gap year or a holiday where you plan out and say, I want to go to this bar. I want to go and do this. I want to, I, I can't really get drunk in this project because I'll have a hangover and I'll lose half a day and I don't have that kind of time. Wow, so yeah. you are running on a schedule. For sure. uh, it's, it's constantly moving forward. Um, if I, I get to see some interesting things in the countries that I travel through. I get to see a lot of interesting things, mm-hmm. but usually only if it's local. I would not travel 100 kilometers in the opposite direction to see something and mm-hmm. then travel 100 kilometers back. Um, it just doesn't make sense uh, with the 
the time management with the finances within the project and for a number of different reasons. Plus, I do not enjoy sitting in a bus if I don't have to. Yeah. I try to avoid it. Exactly. So if someone says there's a beautiful waterfall, it's just four hours away, we're leaving six o'clock tomorrow morning. I'll go, thank you, but no, thank you. (laughs) I've seen water falling before and I don't (laughs) want eight hours of transportation, four hours out and four hours back. Of course. Yeah. I get your point. And now COVID hit and you were in Hong Kong and that's the reason why you've been here. Yeah. Um, You were lucky enough in a way to have done basically more than 90% of all those countries. Yeah. But moving forward, do you see the possibility of traveling in the same way? Mm, yeah, I think so. I think uh, probably we will have temperature checks and uh, this kind of stuff in the future. This will be standardized. And it already has been standardized for some airports in some countries. Uh, so I just think it's coming internationally everywhere. Um, but I think, yeah, travel will come back as, as, as normal. I don't think people will be wearing masks and screens and have to do uh, COVID tests and this kind of stuff in, in the future. Mm. But this will certainly continue for some time. Mm. But yeah, I think travel is coming back. I think it will take a lot of time. And for me personally, I have nine countries left. These are all island nations with uh, no ferry connections. Okay. So I need to find uh, sailboats that are crossing incredible distances who want to take me. Or get on board container ships, which is much more efficient, but also very hard to do because they have no reason to take a passenger on board a container ship. And from what I'm seeing, now the container shipping companies, they are much more cautious because they don't know what's happening next month. Mm. So if they take me on board now, I might get stuck on board the ship and then they have another problem. Or if regulations change in some port, then them bringing a passenger on board will cause all sorts of conflicts and problems for them with cargo operations. Yeah. So they're much more strict uh, than they were before the pandemic. Mm. You are actually leaving very soon for the next destination. Is that right? Yes. After two years. So where are you going now? I'm going to Palau. To Palau, right. So I'm back on schedule. I came to Hong Kong to get on the ship and go to Palau. And in fact... By some coincidence, it's the exact same agent that received me on January 28th, 2020, okay. that I'm communicating with now and who will pick me up on Wednesday wow. and bring me to the ship. Okay. So the everything's one, the one just, who told you who was it? Yeah. Five days? Yeah, yeah. Four days? So we're back on schedule and uh, it's the same shipping company and everything. Yeah. So I, I see this progress. I'll be going to Palau and then possibly I'll be coming back to Hong Kong. And then I might just be stuck in Hong Kong for a bit longer. Or maybe I can get on a ship and go to New Zealand or Australia, which mm. also seems to be opening up now. Um, or maybe not. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very, very say. difficult to say. At this point, I don't know if I can return to Hong Kong from Palau. The okay. shipping company said it flat out. They say, we cannot guarantee your return. Okay. And then, assuming that everything goes well, a few months from now, however it is, then you'll finally going back. What's next? Yeah, so the general idea is to lie down and sleep for one month (laughs) (laughs) and enjoy that it's over and that the load has been lifted from my back and there's no more pressure for reaching the final countries. And uh, then I will wake up and shave because my wife doesn't like my beard at all. (laughs) And then we will start a family and I'll see friends and my own family And then in the bigger picture, I hope uh, to develop a book where I will share some of my learnings and uh, my stories from around the world and uh, go out and do public speaking uh, on a professional Mm -hmm. level. 
you said that you were already a motivational speaker. Yes. So I've done more than 100, uh, 100 speaking engagements around the world. And uh, it's something that people seem to enjoy a lot. And I like doing it as well. And uh, I think it could be a good living for me. So mm. I will try to explore it. Mm. Well, just to wrap it up with a couple more questions. Sure. What, what would you say to um, to people who maybe not necessarily doing a similar uh, experience, but like getting out there outside of their countries? Often people are quite in their comfort zone. They do like traveling for five days to mm. a hotel resort, but like a more like a more a trip that is more closer to the actual culture. And maybe they're afraid of doing it or just, you know, too scared to plan it all. What would you say to them after you have had that experience? Well, I would tell people to keep in mind that they are a guest in every country except for their own country. And they should be courteous and show respect. And they are ambassadors for their own country. So you can go to some country in the world and maybe they never met anyone from, from your country. Uh, certainly a lot of people have never met anyone from Denmark before. Mm. So in their eyes, I represent everybody in Denmark. Yeah. So if I'm a huge asshole, then they think, well, people from Denmark are assholes. Yeah. <laughs> but if they like me a lot, then they say Danish people are nice. So I think that's super important. I think people should uh, show trust. Most people are trustworthy and most people are kind and not trying to harm you. They're just trying to get on with their own lives. But at the same time, there are a few rotten apples out there. So don't don't be blinded, mm. you know, but, but trust as, as much as you feel you can. And then go out and learn a couple of words in the language that mm. is spoken, because it really makes people happy to see that you're trying and uh, go out and explore it. Eat something you've never tasted before. Maybe you like it, maybe you don't. Mm. And uh, go to a museum you never thought about going to and uh, say yes to invitations uh, I've been to every church and mosque and temple you can imagine because people are quite religious around the world mm. and often they want to share it and they say, would you like to come with me to the mosque or the temple or the whatnot? And I just go, yes, <laughs> let's go and see. Unless it's a four-hour bus drive. Well, unless it's a four-hour bus drive, yeah, it has to be local. <laughs> Very nice. So how can people follow your journey and how can people get in contact with you if they if they want to? Sure. Well, people can connect with me across a multitude of different social media platforms. I have uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and YouTube, and there's a blog. And all of it has been named Once Upon a Saga. So it's quite similar to saying Once Upon a Time, but mm -hmm. instead of time, it's S-A-G-A, -A, Saga. And uh, if they look for that, then they should be able to find my social media. And mm -hmm. But uh, I manage it. And if you write me there, then maybe I'll, I'll reply. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your journey and I've had a lovely time with you. Thank you. And yeah, and I wish you all the best with the remaining of your journey and hopefully it doesn't take another few years. Yeah, hopefully so you not. Thank you. Yeah. Thank well, you so much. Yeah. So for sure I have more than a year left, but it was a real pleasure to be here on your podcast. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. And thank you for all the questions. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good day.